Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, well, I'm here. I'm excited to talk about the scriptures with you. As am I, as am I. It feels like it's been longer than it has, but I don't know if it's, it's probably just this coronavirus. I'm officially losing track of what day it is, um, which can't be a good sign. We're on Mosiah 11 through 17. So uh, we're basically just picking up where we left off during our last discussion. So we probably don't really have to talk too much about context. We can dive right into this, uh, right into this content here. What we have in chapter 11 is an introduction to King Noah. We learned that he laid a tax on people. He doesn't keep the commandments of God. He caused his people to commit sin. Basically fired all the uh, all the chief priests and consecrated new ones. And as we'll learn later, they just seem to be yes men that don't know the scriptures or their law all that well. A fact which is a direct contributor to Noah's demise, as we'll see later. And something interesting in verse 6 and 7 is that though they glutted themselves on the labors of the people with taxes, I assume it's a, it's a heavy tax because it says that they labored exceedingly to support iniquity, the people became idolatrous like the king and his priests because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words for they did speak flattering things unto them as is said in verse 7. What I'm hearing is that they, the people, are buying into a particular way of life because their political leader is appealing to their pride, even though that particular way of life is not in their best interest. And this isn't unique to Noah's people. Today, for example, political leaders have managed to garner support for policies that go against the interest of white heartland Americans by appealing to their racial resentment. And they're not just going against their economic interests, but also their medical interests as well. These folks are willing to put their own economic and physical health in jeopardy to preserve racial privilege. That's how powerful racial resentment is, which kind of makes me wonder how exactly did Noah flatter his people? I mean, there's no doubt that they didn't care all that much for the Lamanites. And it's entirely possible that Noah and his priests could have appealed to that hatred. We see a direct attribution of the people's hatred of the Lamanites to the wickedness of King Noah and his priests in verse 19. We also see that, uh, that King Noah and his priests are committing all kinds of wickedness and causing the people to commit sin, likely implying that their sinful living is in harmony with the law of Moses, or at the very least that they won't be punished because of it. Again, what is being said is perhaps not as important as the consequence that the people were deceived by vain and flattering words, but I think it's uh, I think it's wise to know what this might look like for us that we might be able to uh, to react appropriately. I'm not really sure what the context is here, the historical situation he is here around taxation, but I can talk about the ancient Near East. Um, and one of the things there is to remember that they didn't have liberal democracies. And so when we read the word tax in the Bible, we should really almost translate it as tribute because these weren't taxes that people pooled their resources through their representatives in order to serve the people. This basically was Rome extracting tribute from oppressed and occupied peoples 
and that money went away and it never came back to serve the people. A lot of the public building projects were actually funded by rich benefactors. They weren't funded by tax money. So we have to remember when we see tax, we shouldn't just think, oh, taxes are automatically evil. It's like, well, how do you translate it? What exactly is going on? And I think that's important to keep in mind. And the other thing to keep in mind is that when Mormon is abridging and arranging and editing this, he's making a clear contrast between King Noah and King Benjamin because King Noah exploited the people, divided the people, and used the wealth for his own benefit. And it's, it's an exact literary contrast and antithesis of the way King Benjamin did things. Now, King Benjamin had people pool their resources. So it's, yes, there is a sense in which there's a contribution from the people, but it's the exact opposite of the taxes that were done in an, ex, in a, uh, an exploitation of the people by King Noah. So you see where I'm going with this? I think yeah. we're supposed to, it's a, the wickedness of King Noah really rings out clearly once you have fallen in love with King Benjamin. Yeah. And something else worth mentioning in these last few verses in chapter in chapter 12 is Noah's primary stated concern was that his people would be stirred to anger with another and that contentions would be raised among his people because of Abinadi. He, he basically accused Abinadi of being divisive. And we see similar rhetoric today from leaders and folks in positions of privilege. We, we can observe a person or a group of people engaging in behavior or supporting rhetoric that perpetuates institutional marginalization. And when that's brought to their attention, they, they often counter argue that, that acknowledging such problems is quote divisive. I, I see it all the time as a black man in America. For example, every 4th of July post an excerpt from a, uh, Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? It's a wonderful speech in that it calls into question how a holiday celebrating freedom, seemingly the most sacrosanct of all American ideals, can be celebrated by a whole population of American citizens to whom that privilege is not actually extended. And there's always someone who has something negative to say about it for no real reason other than the, the fact that pointing out America's imperfections on its birthday feels mean-spirited to them. That, that attitude is perhaps a conversation for another day, but what inevitably is said is something along the lines of pointing out racism is dividing our country, which is logically not true, but nonetheless persists as a strategy to preserve a status quo that, that oppresses people. This is what I see in Abinadi and Noah's interaction. I see Abinadi who like black folks calls out indignity and I see King Noah like the American institution who has a vested interest in preserving that indignity. If, if Abinadi has his way, Noah loses his concubines, his 20% tax that sustains him and his ability to commit whatever other wickednesses he wants with impunity. He loses his entire lifestyle that is built on other people's oppression. He was going to find a problem with Abinadi no matter how nicely he said what he had said. And as a quick tangent, this is my main problem with tone policing. The messaging is never the real problem, but an excuse used to silence the 
legitimate grievances of a marginalized person that you weren't going to hear anyway because they threaten your way of life. And one more thing worth mentioning here while we're talking about oppressive, oppressive institutions. No problem as big as racism, as homophobia, as misogyny and the like are going to go away without confronting them. We Mormons aren't a very confrontational people, but the gospel demands that we forfeit that comfort of non-confrontation for the sake of Christ as Abinadi did. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit more by the time we get to the conversations about his death and uh, Alma's desertion of the priests of Noah. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of the relevance of the concept of idolatry, which we get to when we talk about the Ten Commandments in a, in a moment. But I think there's a real sense in which the, a country or nation or government can become an idol and be literally worshipped as mm -hmm. the source of ultimate good and the ultimate power. You know, that's what the adversary really does. The adversary is smart enough not to tempt us with, with you know, ugly and awful things to worship. What the adversary does is to take things that are intermediate goods, like family or country or the scriptures or prophets or, you know, any of these other things that are intermediate goods. They're not the most important thing. You know, of course, God is the ultimate good and the ultimate authority. But we're tempted to take one of these secondary goods and make it the primary good. And once you have done right. that, you have stepped into idolatry. Idolatry. That's definitely something that's highlighted in this whole introduction to King Noah and what his sin against this people were. He encourages the people to become idolatrous. So I just find it very interesting that you brought that word up when that seems to be one of the primary sins of King Noah and his people. Right, exactly. And I think this helps to explain why people react so poorly to Frederick Douglass's speech, because what you've done is criticized the orthodoxy of their idolatry. Yeah. And once you've done that, you've tapped into something really powerful. You are now a, an apostate within the orthodoxy of their idolatry. So let's look at what happens at the beginning of chapter 12. Beginning of chapter 12, okay. So chapter 12, and it came to pass that after the space of two years, this is two years after uh, Abinadi really uh, condemned Noah, that Abinadi came among them in disguise, that they knew him not, and began to prophesy among them, saying, and here's the funniest thing, is he actually says his name here, so this disguise doesn't, doesn't work very well. Thus has the <laughs> Lord said... <laughs> Thus disguise. The, Gone for two years, comes back in disguise, and says his name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thus has the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, go and prophesy unto my people. For they have hardened their hearts against my words. They have repented not of their evil doings. Therefore, I will visit them in my anger. Yea, in my fierce anger will I visit them in their iniquities and abominations. Now, one of the parallels that I want to bring up is from, uh, from the Bible. And there's a, there's a parallel text in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 35 through 43. There is a prophet that goes into King Ahab. This is an unnamed prophet. This prophet right. goes into King Ahab with a disguise in order to trick him into judging and condemning himself. It's, it's almost like what um, the, prophet Dathan, the prophet Nathan did with King David. But, um, so the prophet goes into King Ahab wearing a disguise, gets him to condemn this hypothetical person for something. 
and then reveals himself and says, surprise, I'm the prophet, and you just condemn yourself because you, you're the person I was talking about um, in a roundabout way. And I think that's kind of the background of what's going on here. I don't, I don't see the... Now, it could be that the disguise was for him to sneak back into a place where he could... Because obviously there was this arrest warrant out for Abinadi already. So maybe the disguise was in order to get access and then he could unveil himself. But I think it's really interesting how there's a prophetic, uh, a prophetic import to this whole disguise thing. That he's able to, you know, throw off his disguise and say, look, this is the truth. I, I just think that is so beautiful. Mm. And I love the idea that when we who are LGBTQ come out, we're actually throwing off a disguise and speaking our truth. And then there's pushback. So I just love how there's this intertextuality with the queer experience. I. And one of the things he does say is basically, I mean, he basically calls the priest of Noah hypocrites. I, I think I called them dumb yes men when I first spoke of them. And this instance at the end of the chapter is why I, is why I feel like this. They demonstrate a severe lack of knowledge of scripture in addition to their lack of righteousness. And Abinadi basically snatches their collective wig. He exhibits shock when they indicate they don't understand a prophet as simple as Isaiah. And then he seems appalled when they claim to teach the law of Moses, when they either don't seem to know it or care for it. All this gives credence to the idea that Noah has consecrated these priests primarily for the purpose of validating him and his rule, regardless of their qualifications to actually be priests. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that these wicked priests quote, they must have not known the scriptures real well because in context, this quotation from Isaiah chapter 52 really condemns them because it sets up this contrast. So in Isaiah, you've got the exile as punishment of a, of a people for their wickedness. And then in this Isaiah 52 text, you have a prophecy of the return of the exile. So these redeemed... Israelites are returning from exile. And that's why it says, you know, how beautiful is the person, you know, the feet of the person that's announcing this. And then part of it is thy God reigneth. And for me, that talks about, and for Isaiah, it talks about the victory of God over every oppression. And then we've got the ruined city, Jerusalem, being comforted and redeemed. And I think this is just so beautiful because you've got the exposition of sin, and then you've got the centrality of redemption, which later on, um, so I, so Abinadi gets asked about this, but he doesn't answer this right way. He gets to it later. You know, they try to kill him, but then he, they're not allowed to until he finishes his messages and gets to his point about this and finally answers their question about this Isaiah text. But to me, it's so beautiful because it talks about what happens when a people are wicked um, collectively. And then yeah. what plans God has for redemption and pointing people back to Christ. So that's kind of where I had with this. And I just love that one of the first things that Abinadi says to the wicked priests, this is in verse uh, 29 and 30 of Mosiah 12. And again, he said unto them, if ye teach the law of Moses, 
why do you not keep it? Why do you why do you set your hearts upon riches? So the I love this parallelism here because you the first thing he says after talking about the law of Moses is they're setting their hearts upon riches. I think economic injustice is one of the most under underappreciated topics in the scriptures because most people now think oh this is just a private thing you know but there's a communal aspect and entire civilizations are judged by how they distribute their wealth and here like even before you know the sexual immorality it's the economic injustice that is pointed out first by Abinadi so we should always remember that okay and also, this is not the first time that economic injustice is mentioned in the book of Mosiah. This is like our, at least our third time coming upon it in the whole uh, book of Mosiah. Right, exactly. I think the reader is expected to fold all of King Benjamin's teachings, which I think historically Abinadi would have known and drawn upon King Benjamin's teachings. I think that's also something something pretty clear. And then, and then what happens in the rest of 12 and then into 13 is a discussion of the Ten Commandments. And Abinadi really goes back to the basics and says, this is what God is expecting of you. This is how you're supposed to treat one another. This is, you know, the basics of leading a just and upright life. And I don't know how much I want to get into it, but I thought it would be interesting to just mention this uh, spell 125 from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Because it comes closest, we don't have any exact parallels to the Ten Commandments in the ancient Near Eastern literature, but this probably comes closest. Like the Code of Hammurabi comes close as well in some ways. But I just love how you have, um, but that's actually more case law and, and talking about uh, various options and what happens to do in different cases. But I think just having a simple list of commandments really comes out here in, in the Book of the Dead. And this talks about how so here's what happens this is one of the spells that someone is supposed to say and there it's almost like a temple recommend interview where the soul spells spells yes all right just making sure i heard that right yeah it's almost like a temple recommend interview in which the soul declares their their justice and um and their innocence and then there's a whole bunch of it's a negative confession about listing almost 80 actions that the person did not commit. And a lot of them have parallels to the Ten Commandments. One is, I have not robbed, I have not been envious, I have not killed people, I have not copulated with a man's wife, I have not debased the God in my own town. If you look through, I'm skipping around all of these. All of those have parallels in the, um, in the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you have had any interesting things to say about that, but I thought it was pretty cool. Only that uh, the fact that uh, Abinadi had to go back to teach the Ten Commandments to a people that supposed to teach their people the Ten Commandments is indicative of why perhaps we as a church have not gone much beyond, beyond general principles, um, you know, in our Sunday schools or in general conference. I feel like a lot of what we get in general conference, even though the general authority's responsibility is to teach general principles, we don't often break new ground or don't often talk about new things because we still have to master the old stuff. We still have to master the basic general principles. And they're always going to be relevant. We're always going to, 
you know, talk about them in some form or another so long as we need them. But um, we can't move beyond the basics of the principles of Jesus Christ until we master what we have now. We can't really move into any serious questions or serious conversations on economic injustice until we really master what we have right now with regards to the law of sacrifice, the law of consecration, I don't know, whatever it is, but I just feel like a lot of the reasons we talk about the basics of regional conference is because we still need the basics as a church. Right, that is so true. And I think that gets back to my point about why we have the blessing of both ancient scripture and modern prophets. Some people think, oh, you know, now that we have modern prophets, like we, that's all we need, we don't need the scriptures. That's I, I, the irony is so much of the power of modern prophets is how they apply the ancient scriptures. That's exactly what Abinadi does here. It's not like, oh, I've got mm -hmm. this fresh message that no one's ever heard before, and I'm the authority. We don't need any scriptures. He's like, oh, we got to get back to the scriptures. Right. And I think part of the part of the I think there's this cultural thing, especially around general conference time, of nearly idolizing our prophets and apostles to the to the exclusion of the ancient scriptures. But what I like about having both is every culture has their um, the things that they that they uh, they do that they don't even realize, and all of these cultures have different weaknesses and different blind spots and different things. And I and I think one of our blind spots is economic injustice, which the ancients spoke about extremely powerfully. And I think having both modern and ancient prophets. And getting all of those as checks and balances on us yeah. really helps us get a better picture of what's going on. So I don't Definitely. want, and I'm obviously the last person to to really have any, to, to lack appreciation of the ancient scriptures. That's like my whole life, right? But <laughs> It's what you do for fun. It is your yeah, whole life. Yeah, it is. And so, so yeah, I think there's there's value in what seeing what every generation gets called to account by with the uh from the ancient scriptures and and that's mm -hmm. what that's all point of reading the book of mormon we can't ever just say well all i need to know for this uh, six months is what happened in last general conference and that's all i need to know i think there's this uh temptation to do that right. but i think we'll have a richer and stronger foundation if we have both ancient and modern prophets hand in hand each supplementing which the which the other lacks Mm. Yeah, definitely. I like what you said about them being checks and balances. They really all should work together like a, uh, I, I guess, a three-legged stool. You know, our own revelation, the words of the prophets, the words of uh, ancient scripture, like they, sh they really should all work together in a perfect world. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Um, and so I just love how you get you get the basics here in the Ten Commandments of a Just Life. And then I wanted to go on. Are we ready to go on and talk a little bit about uh, Abinadi's death? That would be great. I mean, there's a lot to learn just from these first, uh, like, ten or so verses. Yeah, and I think Abinadi has this long talk where he ex does an exposition of Isaiah and talks about the suffering servant, which I don't want to, for the sake of time, I don't think I need to cover because... A lot of that actually gets recapitulated in Abinadi's own life and death. He he uh, embodies here 
what he's preaching about. So there's um, Skousen's earliest text of the Book of Mormon where he has sort of critically reconstructed from the earliest manuscripts, and there's some conjectures as well, conjectural emendations of the text. Um, what's interesting in Mosiah 17, verses 13 through 15, it says, And it came to pass that they took him and bound him and scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. And now when the flames began to scorch him, he cried unto them, saying, Behold, even as ye have done unto me, so shall it come to pass that thy seed shall cause that many shall suffer the pains that I do suffer, even the pains of death by fire, and this because they believe in the salvation of the Lord their God. So here you've got uh, Abinadi sealing his message with his sacrificial death because he died not as a sacrifice for sins, but as a sacrifice for the message because he basically had the option of, oh, if you stop teaching this, we'll let you live. And he's like, nope, there's, there's things that are worse than death. And that would be betraying what the Lord has told me to tell everyone. Mm. But anyway, so Skousen's earliest text, they, we don't have the original manuscript for this part of the Book of Mormon. The printer's manuscript and the original 1830 edition both have the word scourged. But Skousen conjectures that it originally must have been scorched in the original manuscript. And then, because that makes more sense in the context, because you've got, then it would say, um, and they took him and bound him and scorched his skin with faggots, which are burning uh, sticks. And, and, then, and then it ties in with verse 14, which ha actually has the word scorch. Hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Um, because to scourge him would be to beat him with these sticks that are on fire. And that, uh, well, that, well, well, maybe they did that. But I think it makes sense just to say that they, they're setting him on fire. Gotcha, gotcha. And this and Abinadi's death is really similar to the martyrdom of Polycarp, which I won't get into. But it's another case where you have an early Christian martyr who, uh, and I said I wasn't going to get into it, but <laughs> real briefly... He had the choice of of denying Christ and living, or or just being killed by the Roman authorities, and he ended up taking taking death. But where I think the real power in the narrative is, is with the effect on Alma. Like you could almost have. I was talking about thinking about the phrase "the rise of Alma," right? Because he he uh, is one of the wicked priests. And then sees Abinadi move. The rise of Alma sounds like a Star Wars episode. I was right? thinking like that just got, now. The rise of Alma. Yeah. But what? But when we look at how Abinadi's teaching and the example of his death and martyrdom sparked the rise of Alma, it's very interesting how the sacrifices of one generation can set us up for the empowerment of the next. Mm. We've seen this in almost every social change movement. You know, like look at the death of um, Harvey Milk, for example, right? I think that empowered, you know, the sacrifices of the Stonewall movement, that empowered the next generation. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's almost every every move for social change has had martyrs in it. Yeah. Um, every civil rights movement has had these martyrs. And so I think that's kind of... Um, where I wanted to go with that. What are your thoughts about Alma, Alma and then Abinadi's death? I think one of the first things I noticed was that we see the impact of both activist and ally at the same time. They focused on Alma first 
Alma is disrupting the solidarity of the chief priest. There is a fragility here that has been on display ever since we were introduced to King Noah and his, uh, and his priests. He basically fired his father's chief priest and he hired his own and they all seem to be a bunch of yes men. And as we've seen in previous chapters, they don't seem to be all that qualified for their jobs based on their lack of knowledge and lack of commitment to the laws of God. But then again, that's not, that's probably not why Noah consecrated them. And that's what makes Alma's exit so dramatic. Alma was put there to validate Noah and he did the opposite of that when Abinadi finished speaking. He challenged the solidarity of the governing body of this nation and as soon as he did that he fractured a critical source of comfort and power that Noah had relied on during this whole experience. Noah then reacts how we would expect someone in, in his situation to react and not only casts Alma out but takes it a step further and tries to have him killed. Allies to any cause have to make peace with the fact that whatever privileged class they belong to, that class may be hostile toward them for sympathizing with the oppressed, even and perhaps especially if that's the right thing to do. And the lesson from Alma overlaps with the lesson from Abinadi at this point. One of the biggest lessons that we're taught in the story of, of Abinadi, if not the biggest lesson, is to have courage to do what's right even when what's right is hard. We, we probably won't be asked to give up our lives for Christ, but we'll probably have to give up some comfort even for the sake of our covenants. The maladies of racism, homophobia, misogyny, and the like, they're not going away if we don't talk about them. Those will probably not be comfortable or easy conversations, but they are necessary. Um, you know, I talked about Noah complaining about Abinadi dividing his, you know, dividing his people, but true, but true unity as a people is going to be on the other side of that discomfort. And surely for the sake of our covenants and for the sake of Christ, we can take that on with the same courage with which Abinadi faced Noah and his own death. And that kind of leads me to this final thing that you brought up shortly before we started the show, which is that uh, too many people with flawed beliefs about marginalized individuals, they see themselves in Abinadi. They see themselves in Christ because they feel that the resistance, the pushback against their bigotry equals persecution. I think it's important to name that because a lot of people will, there, there are now social costs to being a bigot, right? And that's just a, a yeah. fact. And a lot of people now will try to twist that and say, oh, no, I'm being persecuted for my faith or I'm being like a bin and die or I'm being like Jesus. And there's people persecuting me when all I'm trying to do is defend my views on society or the family or whatever. And what it does is it takes their racism, sexism, homophobia or whatever and elevates that to the core of the gospel. And they're 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 essentially serving that they're not serving Christ. But they're using this idea of being persecuted in being persecuted for the name of Christ on stuff that Christ would never have put his name to. Yeah. So I think that is really where this uh, where we get to it. I have two sort of quotations from First Peter. Now, First Peter was written to a persecuted people. And I think we talked about this back when we did the New Testament and how a lot of what the author of First Peter is doing is. Um, using this respectability theory that if we kind of 
get along with with everyone else. Uh, some of the some of some things will be all all right. But here's what happens. So this is First Peter four verses thirteen through sixteen. I'll be reading from the New English Translation. All right. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when His glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer, and here's the important part, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. Now, I think I love how the author here is... Um, saying there's a difference between su actually suffering for Christ and suffering because you're being a jerk and you're causing a problem for society and you are being very socially irresponsible and hurting other people. Those are completely different. And and the author of First Peter here is saying, look, if you suffer for Christ, yeah, you're, you're good. But if you suffer because you're being awful, then you don't get any credit for that, which is what uh, we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. So I love the mm -hmm. fact that even within the scriptures, we have dis a distinction. And you can't excuse every, every amount of pushback or resistance you get from society as persecution for the name of Christ. Because, and I, here's... Here's where I think a, a good way of, of putting this is. It, let's look at the whole Galileo problem, right? So Copernicus and then Galileo were minorities in their ideas, right? Their, their view was a minority view at the time that the earth goes around the sun. And everyone else thought they were stupid. Like, ha, mm. ha, ha, you're stupid. Like, you can just feel the earth. It's not moving. Like, but they were saying something that was very counterintuitive very countercultural. It violated their understanding of Aristotle and their interpretation of the scriptures. So they were like heretics, like literally. Um, well, maybe not so much Copernicus. He was never condemned in his own lifetime. Mm -hmm. And um, but their teachings were condemned and laughed at because they were ahead of their time. There is a difference between being laughed at for being ahead of your time and being laughed at because you're, you know, way past your time and your views are obsolete and everyone knows now the truth. Because there were some people even up until the 19th century that were geocentrists and insisted that the earth was fixed and the sun went and like no one took them seriously. So there's a big difference between being prophetic and being ahead of your time and being persecuted because you're saying the truth before it's socially accepted and then being persecuted for being behind your time and saying something that's not true and already been uh, rejected by society after the controversy has settled and after you've had centuries of, of going through it. I mean, it's just, it's just completely different. You can't even compare the two. And I think that's really what's happening with homophobia here is we're beginning to see homophobia rightly being culturally less acceptable it still is acceptable mm -hmm. but it's less acceptable and all of a sudden that is labeled persecution on the homophobe i'm like 
homophobes can still live the life the way they want. They can marry the people that they want to, right? Mm-hmm. They can have the family that they want to. No one is letting them not marry when they're trying to take my people and say, no, you can't marry or you can't identify as the gender you know yourself to be and all these other privileges mm-hmm. that they take for granted, which have never been on, you know, at risk of being lost. Like they can still do everything, they can still do everything they want and they're claiming to be persecuted here. What yeah. are your reactions to all these things? I guess my initial response is to simply add a witness to that last thing you said about people still being able to enjoy all their rights in spite of marginalized populations being extended them to, even if I believed that gay folks have no business getting married. And even if I believed that Jesus said so, I would still have to acknowledge that functionally nothing would change for me and that it costs nothing for me to mind my own business. Uh, Traditional Christians have been so used to their beliefs being unchallenged that scrutinizing them at all feels like persecution. These kinds of Christians don't know what real persecution is. Maybe when an overwhelming majority of our politicians don't feel that claiming Christianity would help them with elections, maybe when the president feels threatened enough by our presence to propose a ban on our entry into the country, maybe when we feel to change our biblical names to something more secular, maybe when our faith keeps us from uh being able to send our kids to the best private schools or buy or rent homes in the good parts of town, maybe then we can say that we're persecuted. But until then, any claims like that are going to get a big eye roll from me. Um, one such example came about four years ago when Elder Rasband gave a devotional to uh, BYU students comparing a Mormon's right to believe in traditional marriage to a gay person's right to exist. While I can appreciate the intended message, I just think that the framing was very dangerous a person's right to subscribe to homophobia in the name of God is not the it's it's not tantamount to a gay person's right to exist. Right. I mean, there's such an asymmetry here that it's baffling that we even have to spell it out. On one case, in terms of LGBTQ people, you have actual persecution, and then on the other hand, you have people complaining that they're not allowed to persecute the uh, the other group. See, that's what they're complaining about. The fact that they're told you can't persecute them and they label that as reverse persecution. I mean, that's a, that's reverse messed up. Persecution. That's messed up. <laughs> it's just messed up. And how how the adversary has really tricked people into centering their own privilege and makes no sense. And I think really one of the other ways of getting back to this is, well, what is being persecuted for the name of Christ? Mm-hmm. And it has to do with living Christ's life and following his commandments to love God and love your neighbor. And I think persecuting queer people is not following those covenants. You know, later on in Mosiah, we also get, you know, the, the idea of our covenant of mourning with those who mourn and bearing one another's burdens and comforting those who stand in need of comfort. And like, this is what you're supposed to be persecuted for. You're not supposed to be persecuted because you want to be persecuting someone else. You're supposed to be persecuted for lowering yourself, mm-hmm. um, abandoning the the temptation to exploit your privilege, and lowering yourself just like Alma did, just like Abinadi did, just like Jesus did, and saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to take on some of the burden from someone else. So I just love how all this centers back to Christ. We've got this beautiful ser- suffering servant text in Isaiah 53 about um, 
the, a, a servant who is who is rejected and oppressed himself and suffers. That is really the core of what Abinadi is modeling and teaching at the same time. And so much of this entire narrative arc here in this part of Mosiah brings us back to Christ. That's kind of where I want to, for me, end things, is to talk about how that's really what the queer experience is within the church and within believers as well, is, you know, centering back to Christ and getting back to the basics and living out Christ's life. Very good. I think that's a great place to end as well. And uh, with that, uh, before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. You can also join on Lyceum, the newly launched educational podcast platform. Okay. So just by way of housekeeping and business, Derek, where can people find us? Yeah, people can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And our handle on the Instagram and Twitter are at BTBLDS. We are still not on Snapchat and TikTok. We will let you know when we do. So stop asking. Yeah, maybe that's, uh, we're going to get persecuted for our bad dancing on TikTok or something. Yeah, is that, <laughs> we don't, is there anything to do on TikTok besides dance to songs? Like, I, I, I still don't get it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll figure it yeah. out eventually, hopefully. Anyway, if there is nothing else, we don't have any announcements or anything that we got to put the people on, do we, Derek? Nope, other than, you know, just give us a shout out online, share us with your friends and family. Uh, if there's something in this episode that really spoke to you and would help someone out, let them know about us. Definitely, definitely. Can't blow up unless y'all show up. So continue to share the episodes that are meaningful to you guys uh, with your friends and family and people who may be able to uh, benefit from what we're doing here at Beyond the Block. And on that note, till we meet again next week.